Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Book Off, the literary podcast with a difference. I'm your host, Joe Haddo, and it's great to have you with us wherever you are listening from. On this episode, I'm joined by two brilliant authors who will be talking about their writing, their latest books, what they've been reading recently, and we'll be going head to head in a war of the words a little later on, pitching a book that they each absolutely love to us in the Book Off. My first guest was awarded the Scott Prize for her debut collection of short stories and her first novel, A Song for Issy Bradley, was shortlisted for the Costa First Novel Award. Here to tell us about her latest book, When the Lights Go Out, it's Caris Bray. Hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us. And also joining us today is a lecturer, journalist, author and a fellow judge of mine for the Costa Short Story Award, which we have done together for more years than I can remember now. Here to tell us about her second novel, How to Belong, it's Sarah Franklin. Hello. Hello, Joe. So nice to be here with you both. I always think of November as sort of our month, Sarah, because November is the time that you and I and three other judges, Kit Duvall, Simon True and Adele Parks, sit down and judge the Costa Short Story Award, as I said. But of course... This this month and this year, we're not going to be together in a room. I know, it's really disappointing, isn't it? I think the, the judges' dinner is the happiest, one of the happiest <laughs> bits of November, frankly, for the whole thing. It's just so much fun oh. every year. We do have a laugh and, you know, we're, we're still going to be judging it, um, albeit virtually. And of course, we three would be in the same room together recording this podcast, uh, were it not for COVID. So, Karis, where do we find you today? Um, I am in my office, uh, that's in Southport, um, in Merseyside, where we've been in tier three now for some time. So, um, yes. yeah, so that's that's where I am. I've got a beautiful view out of the window of uh, everybody's trees shedding their leaves. So, Oh, well, that's that sort of makes tier three slash the second lockdown <laughs> a little bit better, doesn't it? <laughs> it you know, I'll take, I'll take anything. Yeah, a nice view, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and what about you, Sarah? Are you at home? I'm at home, yet. Yeah. So I'm on Google Maps. I'm exactly halfway between Oxford and London, which always makes me laugh quite a lot. <laughs> um, and I'm in what we call the beach huts. My husband and I knocked down the garage three years ago and built these ridiculous bright blue beach huts instead. Which, um, <laughs> have completely, like, all the people who mocked us for doing it at the time, 
are now just really jealous because we have these purpose-built you know little offices out in the garden so it's three steps to work for me and I've never been happier to do it wow yeah that's amazing isn't it not the 39 steps the three steps to work that's great no no exactly that yeah it's perfect uh, yeah so we're all in different places of course and and the line may go a little squelchy on occasions but we hope anyone listening will forgive us that it's obviously really hard doing this with three tin cans and meters of string so um we will continue on uh, as we have been doing all series and you two already know each other don't you you're friends yes we are i just we met on an arvon course actually, um, funnily enough. And what is one of those when it's at home? So we were both doing, what was it? An, it was a finished novel, novel, which always made me laugh because I was so clearly so far from finishing the <laughs> novel. But, you know, <laughs> in 2013, Karen, yes. I was trying to remember. I think, I think it, was it was too. I was trying to remember as well. And oh. so it was a residential week, oh, well, five days away um, where we'd sort of gone to get some time to write and there were um, some writers there who were you know doing workshops and reading our work and Sarah and I met then and Sarah befriended me um you make it sound like you have no, no choice well, which was probably well too. Sarah is just one of the warmest friendliest people I have ever met and I have to say that at the weekend I listened to um the Belfast International Arts Festival had a zoom thing I don't I don't know how to describe it but anyway it was online and Sarah Moss and Sebastian Barry were there and Sebastian Barry said and I, st- I paused the feed so I could write it down to be befriended is one of the great magnificences and I and I don't think I'm not particularly assertive I'm a bit of an introvert I'm so glad Sarah befriended me because it's you know we've been friends for seven years and yeah it, it that was the the best thing that, that yeah. came out of that writing course for me if we were in the same room at this point, I would be happy. <laughs> well, for everybody, that we don't have that. But I remember just thinking, you had this quality. You were just still and you listened. And then when you had something to say, everybody listened to it because it was always so precise and so right. And <laughs> I really, really envy those qualities in anybody. <laughs> being still and being able to, <laughs> and saying the right thing. Oh, thank you. No, you know, just really aren't my, my core strengths. And I was like, this woman is so interesting. And there were a couple of things you said when you sort of ever so slightly contradicted yourself. And I thought, oh, there's more there. She's telling us what she wants us to know. And I just oh, thought, that's that, really that's frightening. <laughs> it's like she's been studying you, Paris. <laughs> <laughs> but I've just made myself down completely. <laughs> if only. Um. Well, I, I love how this. Um, I love having friends on this podcast because it always tests the friendship at the end when you go head to head and pitch a book <laughs> against each other. About and we yeah. we see the competitiveness come out of both of you. But I'm sure. I'm sure you will both be uh, the best of friends when we finish. Um, Before we get to the book off, though, uh, we have to talk about your latest novels, um, which have just come out. And I've got both of these beautiful books in front of me. I'm looking out of my window here onto some trees. And actually, it's almost like they're a photo image of the front cover of How to Belong, which is this beautiful shot of the forest. Forest of Dean, I imagine, Sarah, is it? Fortunately, I'm not so much of a nerd that I can recognise tree by tree all of the Forest of Dean. Um, but I think we should... Why not? <laughs> I mean, although there are bits of it, honestly, that I've seen in photos and I've known it's the forest, which I think is a bit disturbing, really. Um, but, yeah, it's an absolutely gorgeous cover. And this is one of these... I think there are very few um, 
advantages to lockdown, but this book was due to come out in May. And when we decided it needed to move to um, November, everybody was like, well, the cover is just going to be so perfect, frankly. You know, make <laughs> if nothing else, people will be drawn to it to have a bit of that gorgeous autumn in their house. So, um, yeah, yeah, absolutely beautiful. Well, it, 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 it is beautiful and it, it absolutely is the right time for it. Not only because it's autumn now, but because I think so many of us are just sort of wishing to be outside, you know, and, and making sure that we are trying to get outside as much as possible. And actually with both of these books carries with yours as well you know it really does make make the reader want to be in nature a bit and and for your front cover it's a, it's a very sort of different style carries but still this um you know this beautiful sea albeit with a house floating in it but like um it's very, it's very much it's very much naturey as well isn't it in terms of uh, the subject matter so let's talk about when the lights go out it tells the story of a married couple emma and chris could you tell us a little bit more about them and a little bit more about their situation? Yes. So when the lights go out, it's the story of Emma and Chris and, and they've been married for some time and they have an historically happy relationship. However, when we join them during a particularly wet winter, their relationship is is becoming somewhat strained. Emma is preparing for Christmas um, and Chris is fretting about starvation and societal collapse. Um, he's turned off the heating, he's making his sons run across the moss which is like uh, some farmland uh, where they live and he's got other plans that Emma would definitely veto if he shared them with her. She really wants to try and and rescue him from this sort of pit of worry that he's fallen into but he he doesn't want to be rescued in fact what he would really like is to pull her in after him and I suppose it's it's a novel about coming to terms with our changing environment but it's also a novel about the changing climate of a marriage that's my, that's my sort of elevator pitch. <laughs> that's the elevator pitch. Very good it is too. And yeah, you're right. What what I found so so clever about the book as well as enjoyable is that it is it's it's I would call it a climate change novel. Is that fair? Is that, is that a... I do, do you know I, I think No, I don't know. Maybe that's no, I, I into, think, into a corner. Yeah. I think it's fair enough. I I genuinely don't know. Um I think there are certain parameters, aren't there? I think people can get a bit upset about how how novels are categorized and defined i'm happy yes, for, for anyone course. to to define it however however they like um yeah so yes climate change novel absolutely fine by me but it's like you say it's a there's it's the sort of cl- the change of the relationship climates between the two people and it's also with the backdrop of this changing world that we live in and you started writing it quite a number of years ago didn't you so i just wondered what sort of prompted it was it that you wanted to write about the environment the world or did 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 you have the characters in mind first? So I wanted to write I wanted to write about a marriage, um, and because my other novels, um, Song for Izzy Bradley is very much about a family, and every um, per- member of that family has a sort of equal part in the story. And then the Museum of You, my second novel, is about the relationship between a father and a daughter. So this time I knew I wanted to write about a marriage, and I suppose. I, I was interested in writing about climate change. I think back in 2016, I was concerned about fracking, which was um, supposed to be happening not too far from where from where I live. And I just, yeah, I, I thought that I would take the issue of climate change and make that 
an issue in the relationship. And then obviously in 2016, we had Brexit and followed by, you know, those those elections that we that we had. And and I noticed uh, some of my friends felt very differently from their partners about Brexit and the subsequent elections voted differently and that that had a really like a really big impact on relationships that sort of had lots of years in the bank but that one thing uh, made things really tricky and so I, I sort of yeah climate change is the sort of wedge in the marriage it's it's, it's not a, a question of um, believing um, it's not it's not a novel about climate denial it's a novel about how best to respond to climate change that's where the difference between between the characters lies and and chris um is very much um in a sort of fight or flight mode while emma is just trying to uh, keep keep everything going and so, celebrate yeah. christmas and celebrate <laughs> christmas which you know i suppose we're, which we're all thinking about at the we're moment all aren't thinking we? about that. <laughs> absolutely do you know the novel ends on i mean I never say what year it is um, but there's there, there's always somebody who who will work it out and work out if you've made a mistake, isn't there? So so I do you do find out what day of the week it is and what date it is on a couple of occasions, and so the novel actually ends on Christmas Eve 2019. Um, so I I have been sort of excused from including any any of our current uh, misfortunes. <laughs> yes, very good, very good. Yeah. yeah. Sarah, I mentioned your. your beautiful front cover with this forest scene on it and the book is filled with beautiful descriptions of, of forest life and um, I just wondered what was it that drew you to Forest of Dean particularly and also could you tell us a little bit more about Joe and Tessa and their story? Sure so um, the Forest of Dean uh, this book it makes me laugh because I don't think that there's much forest in this book and everybody who's read it is like Sarah the forest is everywhere in this book um, <laughs> which I, I think is, relatively speaking, absolutely true, but just compared with the amount of forest I might have put into it, perhaps less so. So I grew up in the Forest of Dean, and I haven't lived there for 30-odd years, but I'm really, really sort of passionate about telling its stories because I was one of those kids who, you know, was always reading, always devouring things, and I'm not a sort of sci-fi or fantasy reader. I read to understand the world about me, and in the sort of 70s and 80s, books weren't really being written about rural places and they certainly weren't being written about sort of, you know, ordinary rural lives in any real way. And um, when I wrote my first novel, um, that was set in the Forest of Dean as well, but it was historical. And what I really wanted to do, so um, the Forest of Dean is just one of those places, it's really vibrant, loads of people there do sort of really, really interesting things, but lots of people can't really accurately put it on a map and its social mobility numbers are dire and I thought if I can just write a book for the kid that I was or you know for the teenager and then adult that I was um, that shows that and this is going to sound more grandiose than I maybe mean it but sort of show that those sorts of places those tucked away rural places are worth writing about that things happen there that you know that are interesting and are relevant and so with the, with the book, How to Belong, so it focuses on two characters, Joe and Tessa, who end up um, living together in Tessa's um, family's home. So Tessa's inherited this little cottage um, out in the middle of the forest near um, the small town that's sort of the, the nearest um, place to them. 
And they'd both grown up there and they'd both sort of moved away for part. Jo had gone off and um, become a barrister in London. She sort of um, done really well at school and it had always been sort of obvious to her and everybody around her that if she was going to sort of fulfil her potential, she was going to need to leave the Forest of Dean and go out and, you know, find a way of, of learning more. She went off to university, she became a barrister and she's been doing that for about 10 years and it just doesn't do anything for her. She's sort of living at the end of a tube line and working on cases that don't make um, any sense or any real difference to people's lives and she's just sort of more or less permanently homesick um, and her parents um, have owned a family butcher shop so it was her grandfather's before her parents took it over so it's always been part of the community and they decide that they've sort of had enough and they're going to retire down to the coast and Jo can't bear the idea of this sort of family legacy as she sees it sort of come, leaving the family so she persuades them to let her come down for three months and try it you know in her mind she's moving and um, she's going to permanently become a butcher and this will be marvellous leaving aside the fact that she's really really squeamish and even when she grew up there she couldn't do anything useful at all around the butchering and just sort of sat in the corner of the butcher shop reading her book while everyone else got on with it and she's really excited about connecting with old friends and she just feels life will have more meaning she'll be part of a community and she'll be able to sort of do things um, and she finds really without kind of giving away anything that things change you know you you change if you leave for the better part of you know a decade 15 years and sort of maybe romanticize whenever you come home people are pleased to see you and you're sort of in and out for a tiny snapshot of life um, but the people who've left have sort of grown and changed as well and those relationships won't necessarily be as you thought they will be and Tessa's had a very different experience so Tessa um, is a little bit older, she's in her 40s and she's been somebody who um, has always found it hard to fit in anywhere and she'd had a sort of a brief, sort of a momentary chance at happiness which she then kind of self-sabotaged almost because she felt she had to and I think again without sort of giving too much away, um, Tessa um, has a, a condition that we find out about right at the beginning of the book which means that if she exposes herself to emotion then she goes into, bod into bodily collapse so if she um, either allows herself or is around people who are happy or making jokes or angry or anything then her body collapses and so as a consequence she's basically kind of lived this really really isolated life and suddenly this woman moves in with her Tessa needs the rent so Jo moves in um, needing somewhere to live and Joe's emotionally incontinent, basically. You know, all she can do is emote all the time. And so it's really about their relationship with the place. They're, they're two very different relationships with the community um, and also their relationship with each other and how they kind of both counteract and complement each other and, and help each other. That's a fab description. I was ne I'm never sure I can tell anybody what this book is about. That's the trouble. So oh, hopefully Well, that and that's OK, I think. I think that's OK because, you know, Carrie sort of alluded to this earlier. It's... It's like, you know, you can put a stamp on something like, oh, it's a climate change novel, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And it can also put people off where actually, you know, both of these books are about relationships. They're about home. They're about nature. And I think they, they actually complement each other quite well. They're very different. But, you know, having read them in you know swift succession, 
it's actually a perfect match to have you both on together to talk about. We know each other's books um, really, really well because we are each other's earliest readers, I would it's fair to say, isn't it, Karis? And so yeah. Yeah. So do you share share early manuscripts and things? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We absolutely. Do. Yeah. <laughs> we see the chapters that nobody should ever be allowed to see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a very I mean, that in itself is a very special relationship, I would say, isn't it? Yeah. You have to trust somebody when you when you show them work that you know is not your you know it's not your best work because it's it hasn't yet been (laughs) edited and honed and improved and so so you have to trust the person who you show it to that that they'll look at it and and will know what what your intent intentions were and they also won't think oh you're rubbish (laughs) 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 so yeah definitely it's definitely a, a a trust Uh, going on there and I think it's very important for writers um on a very recent episode of this podcast Victoria Hislop and Lissa Evans were my guests and they both said a sort of similar thing in that they you know when we're not in a, a global pandemic they would spend a lot of their time at the London Library writing and at lunch breaks and things would come and sit come together and just bounce ideas off each other or you know talk about a paragraph they've written or a, or a story strand and just sort of use each other as sounding boards really and I think for authors because it's such a solitary job it's probably a really really lovely thing and not not everyone has that not everyone has a Karis or, or a Sarah that's quite nice I imagine yeah I think it's I mean Definitely. I feel extraordinarily sort of lucky to have you know and also someone who writes so beautifully then sort of look and who understands what I'm trying to do and can sort of say you know Karis will sometimes say is that what you mean and because I know that she knows what I mean really you know it's like having a brain Mm. outside your head looking at it it's you know it's fantastic (laughs) (laughs) it's fun yeah and I imagine that stemmed from 2013 then when you were both on this course that's sort of why that that's how this sort of trust has has developed isn't it so that's brilliant yeah I mean the both these books were just such a, a great read and I I really enjoyed especially this time of year sort of hunkering down and getting cozy and reading them and they they feel very much like not only books for now as in the autumn but they feel like you know especially yours carries with with the sort of climate change part of it I do think it's a, a very sort of timely novel and one thing I did think about when I was reading yours Sarah is that talking about women in a or a woman in a in a sort of job setting that you would often associate with a male reading about the butcher shop and just thinking oh yeah and and for it to sort of stand out to me a bit as like oh that would often be written as a son coming back to do that job you know to take on the family business I think I'm naturally contrary and also really really <laughs> drawn so I I come from a long line of people who are really, really smart, but also really good with their hands. So my grandfather was a carpenter, my sister's a nurse, you know, people who can can make change through physical action, and I'm hopeless at it. So I'm really drawn to sort of describe things that I don't, that I know I could never actually do. And so, you know, there's no way that I would be a half-decent butcher. And Tessa is a, a farrier. Um, and it's just, yeah, I think I'm really drawn to kind of big physical jobs that are supposed to belong to men. And just sort of say, well, but why? You know, why should they be? And, you know, out in the country, you would do the job that came to you. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be a... um, Typically, I think the countryside can sometimes confound expectations like that because people just get on with the thing at hand, you know, a bit more. So 
I think that was, as I say, just sort of natural contrariness. Or, or, and, you know, it's nice to write, you know, women doing these things, these surprising things. Absolutely it is. It shouldn't be something that sticks out to me or a reader, but it did, you know, and that's and that's because we've still... That, that's a long association of, of that sort of character and stuff. So, it's, you know, it's just really refreshing, I thought. Now, we're going to get to the book off very shortly before we do that and find out which books you're putting up against each other. I've been enjoying asking all of my guests what they've been reading recently and enjoying, because I think at this time when we're spending a lot more time at home, when because of second lockdown, independent bookshops and all bookshops and shops are sort of going to be needing our help um, however we can, I think it's quite good to get some book recommendations from our authors. So have you been in a reading mood, Karis? Is there anything recently that, that you would recommend that you've loved? So I've been reading short novels. I didn't read very much at the beginning of lockdown because I just was slightly obsessed with like listening to the news and those sort of daily press conferences and I was, oh anyway um <laughs> and what a waste yeah, of time I think we that all were was. a bit like that <laughs> um, but yeah so recently I've been reading short novels so I've read um The Days of Abandonment by Eleanor Ferrante I've not not read any of her stuff before mm. um I read J.G. Ballard's The Drowned World the Spare Room by Helen Garner, which I thought was incredible. An American Marriage by Teari Jones. Teari Jones, yeah. And I read a book called, well, actually, the version I read was called The Emissary, which, but I think that's the American, I think I'd got hold of an American copy. It's actually called, in the British version, it's called The Last Children of Tokyo by Yoko Tawada. I probably murdered the pronunciation there, but... Um, which is a story about a novel about Japan. After it's a sort of post-apocalyptic novel, but you don't quite know what's happened or why. And um, all the old people are really strong. Uh, the main character that we're following, I think, is 110. And all the young people are being born frail and elderly. And yeah, it was it was very strange, but quite lovely in places as well. So. So yeah, I've been been keeping my my reading quite short because I'm trying to write a novella at the moment myself. So I'm trying to get myself into that whole, you know, 150 <laughs> pages thing. <laughs> Getting the mindset, Carrie. Yeah. That's what you need to yeah, do. Yeah. That's, that's and you know what? I love I love a novella. I love a mm. short. But I always say it. I always say it. But I really do. So that's a great uh, great list that you've come up with. What about you, Sarah? You've been reading much other than the Costa short stories, of course, which you and I have both been reading. Quite a few short stories recently, Joe, as you know. Um, none of which that I can really talk about, at least not, not in this forum, not yet. Not but at the moment, no. the And we don't know who they're by anyway, no, do we? that's true. So we can say there's an amazing story, no idea who wrote it. Super helpful. <laughs> but yeah, so I went on an Anne Patchett streak during lockdown, which was, Commonwealth was on my shelf for years and I was... I don't know, something put me off starting it. And then when I did, I was like, why have I never read any? And anybody, everybody around me said, we don't know why you've never read any Anne Patchett. Clearly you'd love her. And so at the beginning of lockdown, I read Bel Canto, which actually works really, really well. You know, if you're going to um, want to feel comforted by something, then actually reading about a hostage situation in which everybody from around the world is in the same situation and there's no real knowing what's going to happen and when it might end. Um, turns out, you know, it was the perfect lockdown reading in a, a bizarre sort of way. And I loved the way 
that you know there are all these different personalities in the room so you see them reacting differently and the um the opera singer who's been sort of taken hostage along with all the businessmen and and sort of unpacked his observations on what it's like to be the one woman in the room with you know all sorts of power and I just think it's a really beautiful and funny funny book um, and then I read so then I read sort of three or four others of hers afterwards and I just love the the way she picks these sort of slightly unusual characters and settings and makes them so wholly real and believable um, so it's it's sort of escapism and at the same time it isn't because you know that this is absolutely how a human being would react in those situations and then the other thing so I don't generally let alone right now um, I don't sleep brilliantly because I'm just so excitable so if I read fiction too close to bed I end up having fever dreams about whatever's going on so you know when I read State of Wonder I was going down the jungle with Ampatchett's um, figures all night and that was exhausting so I've always got non-fiction on the go as well and my current non-fiction read which I would wholly recommend to everybody is called Because Internet and the subtitle is Understanding How Language is Changing it's written by a Canadian academic called Gretchen McCulloch and she's a linguist so she's a trained linguist um, and by you know profession that's what she does but she's also she says a person of the internet and so she's written a book about what the internet is doing linguistically to the way that we speak and you know sort of both on the internet but also the, the spillover off the internet um, and it's just fascinating so she's looking at you know Ryan Gosling memes and um, emojis and things but she's also just looking at the fact that you'd have people none of whom speak a common language, all nonetheless communicating about the same topic, you know, on Twitter or on Instagram or something, and what that's doing just collectively to our sense and understanding of language. I don't I mean, I'm a real sort of linguistics nerd anyway, so it really appeals to me, but <laughs> it's just... Oh, that sounds really yeah, good. really yeah. good. Yeah. Really interesting. I'd, and I, I do think um, Karis mentioned at the beginning of, you know, lockdown one in March, not being able to sort of read at all and being consumed by the news I actually found that my way back into reading after the initial sort of desperation of it all was was through non-fiction and a book like that that you're describing Sarah that would right now that sounds like the perfect thing for me to have on the bedside table you know and just dip into yeah I mean that's it and it's not narrative you know it's not a sort of piece of narrative non-fiction per se I mean it's beautifully written as you'd expect from a linguist but um you know each chapter looks at a different thing so you can just kind of find yourself halfway through something in the middle of the book without it making any you know enormous problems for yourself so yeah great well thank you for for those recommendations hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it's time for the book off now, which is where you're going to recommend us each another book. Um, This time, however, it's a little bit more formal because each of you is going to get three minutes on the clock in which to tell us about the books that you're putting forward. You don't have to use your three minutes if you don't want to or need to, but... At the stroke of that three-minute mark, if you're still talking, you're either going to be honked out or you're going to be rung out by the school bell. So we need to decide who goes first, who goes second, and we need to decide who's going to be honked and who is going to be rung. So, Karis, would you like to go first or would you like to go second? I would like to go first to get it over with. (laughs) Get Get it done with. Very good. And Sarah... Would you like to be honked out or rung out at your three-minute time? I would like to be honked out, please, because when's that ever going to happen again? Honked! (laughs) Um, Fantastic. (laughs) Right, well, that means that that you uh, are going to be getting the school bell, Karis. Excellent. Before we hear you do your pitches, um, just tell us what book you're putting forward. So, Sarah, which one are you going for? I've gone for Rebecca Mackay's The Great Believers. And Karis, what are you putting forward for us today? Um, well, do you know, I was going to do All My Puny Sorrows and I have been listening to the podcast and I realised that that was done quite recently. So, um, <laughs> and I thought, well, I better Sorry choose about something that. else. Sorry um, I better choose something else. So I am doing Jenny Erpenbeck's Visitation. Fantastic. Well, I've put three minutes on the clock for you, Karis. We're going to stay stum. And it's over to you to tell us all about Visitation. So I came across this novella several years ago when I was teaching a really interesting module at Edge Hill University that was called Reading the World. And it looked at literature and film in translation. And Visitation was one of the set texts. Um, It's set on a patch of land next to a Brandenburg Lake. And it tells the story or the history of a summer house that is built there. Um, But it's also a political history of Germany um, from the 19th century to post reunification. It opens with um, an amazing prologue um, describing the prehistoric forces that form the landscape on which the house will stand. It's basically um, 24,000 years of geological history in two pages. And it's it's really well written. And you know, sometimes you begin a book and you just think, yes. And, um, and that's how I felt as I, as I read the prologue. It's, the, the book is it's like a mosaic of stories and vignettes all linked to this property. Um, at the end of the 19th century, there's Clara, the village mayor's daughter, who should have inherited the forest plot, but loses her mind. There's the Jewish neighbour who sells his property to an architect for half its value as he flees the Nazis. There's a writer who moves in, um, returning from exile in Russia. And each story is followed by an encounter with a local gardener and and his routines and his stoicism and 
and his patience, um, especially um, later as the property falls into decay, provide consistency and they, they ground the narrative. My favourite chapter is called The Girl and it tells the story of Doris, um, who a child who has summered at the house. Um, but in this chapter, she's actually hiding from the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto. And I think it might be one of the most beautifully understated uh, yet powerful descriptions of a life and a death that I've ever read. Um, it, it would, well, it does work as, as an incredible short story. Um, at the end of the novella, the house is demolished and there's an epilogue um, outlining waste disposal according to legal guidelines and how you make something like that sound beautiful um, and like like it belongs in fiction um, is beyond me but Erpenbeck manages to do it. It's a really short book it's just 150 pages and it's beautifully written it's thought-provoking and it makes me think about my own house which is I think about 120 years old and and wonder um, what all the stories are um, that that you know that could be associated with the place where I live and that's it I'm done <laughs> fantastic oh wow you you said I'm done it was like you planned it <laughs> it was like you planned it lovely pitch Karis thank you very much and take a breather now uh right My you know what you're God. up against I know, now I'm Franklin. Just like, follow so... that, Franklin I don't think so <laughs> <laughs> so unreasonable so we're putting uh three minutes back on the clock for you to tell us all about The Great Believers. Great, so The Great Believers um, is going to sound like a miserable book, and so I have to start by saying it's not at all. It's one of the most joyous, life-affirming books that I have um, ever read, I think. And it's very broadly speaking about a group of friends, um, predominantly in 1980s Chicago. Um, they're in their 20s and 30s, and um, it's about the impact of the emerging and then the kind of burgeoning AIDS crisis. The novel is told in two strands, so we have alternating chapters which are each in a different timeline. The, um, I would say the primary timeline is the um, 1980s timeline where we go from 1985 for a period of seven years following the life of a young um, art uh, gallery development officer called Yale Tishman and his group of friends as AIDS sort of comes upon this group. Um, so they're all sort of living their lives. Um, they're just really excited and then um, right at the beginning of the novel um, the first person in their friendship group dies and you start to see how they all react so differently to death being among them. The 2015 strand is the other strand and it's just a couple of weeks where we follow um, Fiona who's the little sister of um, one of the guys who dies at the beginning of the book and um, She's estranged from her adult daughter. She's gone to Paris to try to find her. And what we're seeing in Fiona's story is the impact of living with something like AIDS um, 30 years on. You know, what happens when you've basically been through effectively a war and everybody that you know has died amongst you um, and how you find the strength and the hope to continue. Um, this is a book that I've been giving. <laughs> it was going to sound really cool. I've been giving this book to loads of friends during the pandemic because it's just beautiful it's really funny and it really really does bring um, hope I think to all of us that there's something out there um, beyond this um, the stories that um, Rebecca Maca sort of she's um, really researched um, what it would have been like to be um, 
in your 20s and 30s, sort of in Chicago specifically at that time. One of the things I love about her is she's from Chicago, so she's really wanted to write about that. And there are things, so quite early on, there's a scene where um, they go for Thanksgiving dinner and they're having a, a sort of lovely time with this, you know, logical family that they've created. And at the end of the dinner, one of them's a lawyer and he brings out power of attorney forms. He says, OK, you know, we have to decide who's going to look after each other. Um, there's this brilliant subplot about a woman in her 80s who, who may or may not have been an artist muse um, and who wants to gift these sort of priceless objects of art um, to Yale as well, to the art gallery, and sort of it's a way of showing him that people have been through these ravages of their friendships before and they've survived them. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh. Always startles everyone when, it when they're did. not expecting it. Was, I was <laughs> Sorry about that. It was coming. Yeah, <laughs> another fab pitch there, Sarah. Thank you for that. And um, you can have a breather now. Karis, I uh, I don't know of Visitation. I loved your description of it. I loved your description of the girl and how, you know, just this one chapter could be a, you know, a short story on its own. Sounds from your, from you talking about it, that it, for a 150 page novella, it must be absolutely rammed because there seems to be so much in it. Um, yeah, it it really is. It's quite dense. And what, what often would, I think some, some of the students, because I was teaching the, the novel some of them would would find it a little bit off-putting initially and when, when we got to the when we got to the time where we would actually be discussing it for a couple of hours um it was always clear that a couple of people hadn't actually read it so so I would always read the last part of the girl aloud because I thought nobody should get away without, <laughs> without, without having, having part of this it, story yeah. which is wonderful and then hopefully that would make them go you know, go back to and, and, and open it and, and at least read that part and, and get it. But yeah, I think it's really, really lovely. And, and there's there's so many, there's different kinds of writing in it as well. And there's there's some quite playful pieces of writing. When when we look at the story of um, Clara, the village mayor's daughter, who, who goes mad. And in fact, she goes mad at, at the dinner table. It's where, where it becomes really clear that she's gone mad when instead of eating her food, she just smears it all over her face. And I, I actually don't think she's gone mad at all. I think she's, it's like a protest because her life is so restricted anyway but but when we get to that that chapter there's there's um all sorts of sort of funny and horrifying rules about what women must do and and there's these repeated phrases of women you know you may and you must and you may and you must and it's almost like a sort of refrain like a poetical refrain going through um so yeah i, th I just think it's beautifully written and and really interesting as well yeah i mean it really sounds it and you really sold it to us. So that's Visitation by Jenny Erkenbeck. And Sarah, I, I also don't know, I, I must admit, of Rebecca Mackay's novel, The Great Believers, but hearing you talk about it again, I'm really, really keen to read it. And I loved it at the start, you did make the point of saying you, you thought the book was joyous and life-affirming, because obviously if you if you start talking about the subject matter straight away, we're all going to make assumptions that this is going to be a bit of a depressing novel but actually you've described it well in that it's it's a hopeful novel and that in a time like this probably why you've been giving it to lots of friends you know we need to be reading about coming out of something and seeing the other side of it um yeah I love I love the idea of 1980s Chicago I love that sort of character of Fiona with the 
you know dealing with the impact of the age crisis 30 years on I just think yeah there's a lot in that book as well by the sounds of it yeah I mean it's absolutely stunning I think one of the things that I think Rebecca Mackay does so well in this book is that she makes you she really draws you into this world with her characters she's you know it's such vivid characterization and there's you know somebody who's the editor of the local gay magazine and um they're sort of having big fights about how much they should or shouldn't cover this and details you know such as when the the tests first come out people don't know whether or not to go and have them because it could just be the government's way of keeping tabs on the gay community because at this stage you know at the early in the early stages president reagan wasn't actually sort of publicly admitting that there was any kind of pandemic happening um, because it was in such a specific community and so you're drawn and there are some really kind of silly flirty characters in it who are there for light relief but you just get to to love them all they're all so invested in each other's lives and you become so invested in them and then it turns into this terrible thing because because the sort of 80 strand covers seven years you know that they're not all going to make it out the other end and in fact even by the sort of by the end of the novel, if you were just to read the 80 strands, you wouldn't necessarily know that. But the Fiona's sort of section, you know, the 2015 section, casts some light on sort of the fates of some of these characters that you really have just grown to care about. And you feel so protective of them as well, I think, because they're just, they're vulnerable and they're hopeful. And you, it's as if you can see, you know, the herd of elephants coming over the hill towards them and they haven't yet seen it yet or they're trying to kind of dress them up in glitter. You know, they're, they're very obsessed in this book by glitter all the time. I think it must be a kind of 80s Chicago thing. And it's just, you know, you just, I found myself really rooting for them. And it's one of those books, I've, re- I've read it several times since it came out. And it's one of those books that really merits a rereading because you, once you know what happened, although it's not a kind of mystery in that sense, you read it really differently knowing their fates than you do the first time round, you know, when you don't quite know what's going to happen to whom and how it's all going to pan out. So, And it's one of these books, you know, although it's about something that we probably all, you know, we all know about intellectually, it really made me feel how it might have been, you know, and, and hopefully sort of understand that um, time so much better as well, which I like that, you know. I'm going to sabotage myself now and say it is a really good book. <laughs> <laughs> because Sarah, Sarah gave me a copy of it. Yes, of course, I gave Sarah pressed it into my hands a while ago, and I think it. I think it's a fantastic book. And there's a there's a particular chapter in it that is um, just yeah. that took my breath away. Yeah, but I think I'm, I know yeah. that. It, the, yeah, the, there's a there's a chapter <laughs> that yes, that's basically sort of detailing everything you might lose if you were to die. And, at least I'm assuming that that's the chapter for me that just makes me every time Yes, it is. Oh, yeah. oh you've, yeah, you, you're right, Karis. You've absolutely sabotaged <laughs> <I>, Well, <laughs> look, I was, I was enjoying thoroughly both of those pictures and Visitation has been written down and is on the, the ever-growing list of books that I have to go and check out. But um, do you know what? I, I am, based on that passionate pitch, I am going to take home The Great Believers. <laughs> Well done, Sarah. You've won the book off. (laughs) Uh, With a little help from Karen as well. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I love the presentation. It sounds amazing. How to Belong by Sarah Franklin is out now. It's published by Zafri and When the Lights Go Out by Karis Bray. It's also out now. That's published by Hutchinson. Uh, thank you both so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for your recommendations. And hopefully in the not too distant future, we'll be able to do this in person. Oh, thank you so much, James. I hope so. It's so lovely. Thank you. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.